That was my voice. Can you hear me loud and clear? Uh, a little bit too loud and clear. <laughs> too loud and clear. So this is the new audio system from the States. One of the listeners was kind enough to design it for us and send it to us. Uh, this is a prototype. He's got a patent for it, but very soon he will be retelling it. So let's see how that goes. But I mean, this is just the first test run. We're really grateful to him for what he's done for us. And uh, even though I insisted he takes some money, he didn't agree. So by the by, if you get away with this, because our audio quality is really something which we get criticized about quite a lot, then we would have succeeded where we used to fail before. Well, big and loud sounds American to me. <laughs> now, initially we had an episode planned with Anmol Singh Rode, but the fault is ours. We weren't able to actually uh, synchronize our schedule with him. So we apologize to him and we also apologize to all the <laughs> listeners. Next week, we will surely be doing that episode on the Sheath missile, the rise and fall of missile Sheath. That's going to be a good one. That will also be good and that will also be controversial. We will be hitting upon some very, uh, you can say, sensitive points which haven't been thoroughly explored yet and which are, you know, sort of dismissed with the venal oral tradition. Heads up, in between, I might have to go and open my door for someone expecting guests, but let's just continue as well as we can because we are really busy men. Uh, so this current episode, we're doing the Machiavellian Maharaja. This was actually something we had planned for a while back, but then we decided to bin it because ultimately we felt that the concepts were a bit too profound to grasp, especially for the listeners we have. However, given the sort of stats which are rolling in and the recommendations, I mean, it's lucky that we still had the concept on hand, which we were able to get out of the deleted files. And here we go. We have something to fill in the space. Yeah, something <clears throat> very valuable. Yeah, so very for, the listeners, for everybody, just tell me what does Machiavellian mean? Okay, so, you know, this is based on personal experience. Machiavellian really translates to, you know, an adjective to summarize qualities which can be called, you know, very cunning, uh, very conniving, you know, qualities which you would not want to be associated with. Do you agree? Uh, normally, yes, but I'll need them in my life anyhow. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, to a degree, you need them in your life. Now, so... When I was younger, I actually happened upon my uncle's library. He was a military general and a guess who inhabited the top shelf. Uh, some Italian guy? <laughs> All the works of Machiavelli. So I had ample time to read them and understand them. And a little controversial side note here. Uh, you know Pratap Singh Kero, the Congress Chief Minister of Punjab back in the 50s, I believe? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think he was assassinated near Kamal or something. Yep. So, you know, once someone asked Kero that, why is it that the Akalis are always getting thrashed on the Punjabi Suba issue by someone like you? And do you know what Kero said? Tell me. He basically said that I've read and understood Machiavelli. I live Machiavelli, but the Akalis still don't know who he is. No, that's that just Western lands. We don't do that. And I think even today they don't know who he is. Even though military generals, politicians, even business magnates 
they read them. Yep, they read them. And I think our people have this little thing going on that if they want to do something, they want to do it on their own terms, which doesn't really work out in reality. No, it doesn't. No. And talking about things not working out in reality, I suppose that when the missiles were failing, when they were atrophying, when they were rotting away, there was one man who finally changed the fate of Punjab, and that was Maharaja Ranjit Singh, right? Correct. Now, I had this random thought today. Don't you think Maharaja Ranjit Singh actually understood the Gurbani concept of Jomange Thakur Apanete Soi Soi Dave? Well, we have to, if you have to pick his brain, then you also have to think that people think uh, of his rule as Sikh Empire. You know? They call him Sikh yep. Empire, yeah? Yep. But it would be more appropriate to say that it was Ranjit Singh's empire. Well, it wasn't an empire to begin with. His rule. So he must have understood a lot of concepts starting from the lineage he came from, the, the environment he grew up in, and the environment he had to live in. Basically, to me, it seems Ranjit Singh understood that Gurbani verse, Jomange Thakur Apanete. So what that really means, what the Babajis don't tell you because they cast it in a positive light, is that whatever you ask from your master, you will receive. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall receive. But here's a caveat. You can ask for anything and you will get it. That's how hukam works. But are you ready to weather the consequences of your desires? No, for that I'll I'll just do a prayer and those consequences will just get washed away. That's the way it works. Mm. And Maharaja Ranjit Singh basically understood that if he asked for the dhyan, for the wisdom to conquer all the other sardars and build his empire, he would have to live with the consequences, and he did live with the consequences ultimately. But really, if you think about it, Sardar Kapoor Singh used to criticize Ranjit Singh in his writings that you know Ranjit Singh destroyed the Khalsa's uh, Republican setup. He destroyed Nawab Kapoor Singh's legacy. So imagine if he put Sardar Kapoor Singh and Ranjit Singh face to face today. I'm just saying imagine. I'm not saying it's going to happen. Just imagine, right? Mm-hmm. And Sardar Kapoor Singh decides to criticize Maharaja Ranjit Singh that, well, hey, basically at the end of the day, you destroyed that system we have. Do you know what I feel Ranjit Singh would say? Mm, tell me. So what was your alternative, Kapoor Singh? I would basically say that I'm the product of that system. I mean, basically, what was the alternative at the time? That's something we need to consider. I mean, hey, Ranjit Singh could have uh, restored the Nawab Kapoor Singh system, but then who was he working with? You know, political, powerful missildars and sardars who didn't give a damn about the Panth anymore. You know, Akalis who were basically rotting away, who were, you know, bringing Pujari Vadi Soch into Sikhi. So basically, Ranjit Singh, I believe, did what was the best of forest time. Well, it turned out to be the best forest time, yeah. Yep, basically. And if you look at it, for Ranjit Singh, it wasn't all divine blessings or, you know, why Guru will pave the way ahead for you or anything. He actually you had to use his brain quite subtly and, you know, quite heavily. I mean, look, Ranjit Singh, people thought Sadakor, his mother-in-law, was pulling his strings, right? 
That's what most people think. Yep. After a while, he turns around and imprisons her. So he's done the hard work of setting her up. She does the physical hard work for him. Ultimately, he gets rid of her after she's basically done what he wanted her to do. So who was pulling whose strings? <clears throat> That's actually a very, very Machiavellian thought that even the people who have been loyal to you, even they have to go. That's really hard See, to digest, but yep. that's true. See, when you say Machiavellian nowadays, people think it's all sadism and political opportunism. I mean, these same people somehow end up justifying Sikhs reading Shankya Niti under the veneer of Taram versus Ataram, but that's another matter. I believe after reading Machiavelli's works that this was a very sensitive man, right? But this was a sensitive man who had two sides to him. So there was the visionary side. He envisioned a lot of things. He had dreams. But then there was a realistic side and that realism often worn out because the world he lived in could not tolerate dreamers. Okay. I'm going to talk about something that will make it uh, okay. clear to the listeners. What's the difference between a good rule and a good ruler? Can you repeat that? <laughs> the difference between a good ruler and a good rule. What is the difference? There's something called the luxury of ignorance. Well. People who don't know what they're facing or who, who don't understand what a person in a certain position is facing. You can make a claim about him or just throw acquisition at him, but you don't know what he or she is facing, yeah? Yep. So you, you have that luxury of ignorance to run even a business or uh, an empire or maybe you will have like an NGO or something or, or a political party to run it effectively and smoothly. It's not, let's say, a clean affair. No, definitely it's, not. Power is always never a clean affair. Yep, there's always going to be revolts. There's always going to be people who will do anything to replace you. You will have rivals, you will have adversaries, and you will have good friends, or let's say, former allies turn enemies, and everything in between. Yep. So you, you, every single move has to be calculated, and that's the pressure you have. So for us to just sit here and say, oh, this guy's an idiot, should have done that, should have done that. We don't know what's happening. There's something called state secrets that people <laughs> just don't understand. No, they don't definitely understand that. And I find that quite concerning, quite alarming when it's among Sikhs, basically, that there is no political realism. Around partition, there was actually a little booklet which was never officially published. It was actually given to various leaders of various political parties. Basically, the British actually used that booklet to sort of judge what the future of the subcontinent would look like. And um, some interesting observations made by the booklet regarding Punjab, what it said was that the Muslims proactively react to the situation in front of them. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you look at the history of Islam, it's a history of, you know, reactions like majority of the times those reactions are over excessive, but at least they are a proactive reaction against the circumstances which that community faces. Now, regarding Hindus, they are 
always on the lookout for anything which they would have to react against. So they're two steps ahead of the Muslims. They're always predicting realistically what it might be, which might confront them in the future. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that because, you know, if you can envision a problem, that's half the problem solved. Mm, yeah, I understand the issue. Yeah. I mean, that's what they're taught in the Air Force and pilots, you know, basically even in civil commercial airliners that, you know, once you're flying up there, there has to be a part of your brain thinking about what potential problems can go wrong. And that has to be realistic. I mean, if you're flying an Airbus, I mean, the last thing you want to consider is what the hell would you do if these aliens, you know, invaded your spacecraft? I mean, how realistic is that? Well, you, you got a force or something. <laughs> And on the other hand, if you're thinking, well, what if an engine catches fire? What if a pit out fails? Uh, what if a rotor fails? Yeah, then you are realistically sort of predicting and going along that path. Right. Regarding the Sikhs, basically what the booklet said was that the Sikhs since Ranjit Singh's time have not learned any lessons. They aren't like Ranjit Singh at all. That's why they haven't been able to furnish any uh, decisive minded, you know, rapid thinking leaders like him. Basically, they suffer under the illusion that Punjab was once theirs, and it will be again on the merit of their arms. But realistically speaking, they're not fit for a world where wars will be fought with the brain and not with the brawn entirely. Well, if, if your target is to attain martyrdom, then what's stopping you? Well, like we discussed last time, you know, that we expect our leaders to make a last stand. And if you look at Ranjit Singh, the Machiavellian side of him, if you look at it, so first he does Sadakorin, then he resorts to marrying the wives of them, or not the wives, I'm sorry, the daughters and female relatives of the missiles of ours, and then he subsumes those uh, missiles and destroys them. Basically, here's a man who's, you know, 40 steps ahead of everyone else. And realistically speaking, even though he affects an heir that everything he's been given has been given to him by providence, by divinity, really behind the scenes, he's working very hard for whatever it is he wants to preserve. True. Uh, okay. Uh, in in our, uh, one of our podcasts, we have talked about, I think it was a general in Afghanistan who wrote a book that, uh, and in that book, there was a mention that how local people preferred Taliban over the, the corrupt democratic rule. Yeah, Stanley McChrystal. Ah, yeah, yeah, I just remember his last name, McChrystal, yeah. Wouldn't that help us understand better than why exactly these things occur? How could a thing like Taliban could be preferred over democratic government? Yeah? Oh, yeah, basically, because, <clears throat> look, if you look at what happened in Kabul recently, Look what happened in Kabul, like apparently the Taliban came in to defend the Gurdwara and now they're saying they will build the rebuild the Gurdwara. This is Taliban 2.0. We still don't know what way they're going, but most of these leaders seem to have had exposure to Western values, right? And uh, how many of those leaders are theocrats? That's another thing. So we need to consider here something. Are they using the veneer of religiosity just to keep the power in their hands? Or are they really the old Taliban who actually believe that they have the divine right to rule and do whatever it is they want to do in that rule? You also have to remember that a lot of these old Taliban have, have leaders have simply disappeared. That's a discussion for 
for maybe security agencies and that sort of shit. But for us, for the listeners, and for people who are interested in this, this sort of stuff, you should keep a very keen eye on what's happening in Afghanistan today. I have a gut feeling that most of them were killed off by the new generation. However, to make that point again, if you look at it similarly, power brokers and power structures use a lot of that type of stuff, right? They use quite a lot of... Mm, they utilize quite a lot of facades to keep themselves in power, whether it's religious or otherwise. And that's pretty Machiavellian as well, because you're somehow justifying why you're on the seat, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same with Ranjit Singh. I mean, look at it this way. Look at the circles he ran around Akali Pula Singh. And ultimately, Pula Singh realized that I'm only relevant because of this man. I can't really do anything without him. And he had isolated himself from the British and any other future power brokers who might have helped him against Ranjit Singh. There was a mention of some letter that I don't, don't exactly remember the context of. Yep, that was a letter written by the Kali to the British offering to betray Ranjit Singh, but more on that next week, eh? Mm-hmm. Right, and... You know, as Machiavelli states, and this is in uh, one of his uh, most prominent works, which unfortunately are not being read like they should be. We remember him from the for the prince, right? Have you read the prince? Uh, man, a long time ago. To that point, I could say I haven't read it. What about the story of Belphegor the Devil? Uh, uh, I remember most of it, yeah. And just a slight humorous aside for our listeners. Belphegor is in hell, and the devils ask him, why don't you go to Earth, get married, and tell us what marriage is? So we can plan ahead for, you know, people who violate marriages so they can end up in hell and we, you know, find out how to penalize them or punish them. Uh, Belphegor goes to Earth, discusses himself as a human, gets married, Except the fingers, after a few decades, he realizes he's wanted back in hell and that the wife is getting too tedious. She's too rich for his taste. And after making bad investment decisions, one day he decides to ride out of the city. Unfortunately, he's seen by the local authorities, if I remember correctly, and they start pursuing him. And he goes to a peasant and he tells him, well, I'll hide with you. Here's my real soup. Here's my real form. I'm Belfagor. And I will help you get rich. That's what he says to the scared peasant. But if you, you know, try exploiting me, I will destroy you as well. Anyhow, the peasant helps Belphegor uh, escape the authorities. And Belphegor decides that from now on, he's going to possess people. The peasant will go there and uh, Belphegor will, you know, as prearranged, leave that person alone. And people will think that the peasant has killed them and given money. Right? Nice business trick. Nice one. Until the peasant oversteps, and Belphegor, being Belphegor, decides to trap the peasant. And uh, funnily enough, what happens is that the king of France decides that he wants the peasant to cure his daughter. Now, the peasant knows that he's not able to do anything, and without Belphegor, he's going to be executed. So the king has him dragged to his court. And uh, the peasant realizes that, you know what? Belphegor is possessing the princess. Mm-hmm. And uh, he knows that Belphegor is going to get him killed. 
Anyhow, what happens the next day, the peasant sets up all these musicians under a stage, covers it so the musicians are hidden. And he goes up on the stage and the princess is brought up there and Belfagor is, you know, inside the princess laughing how the peasant's going to die. And suddenly there's this massive din. Demon jumps out of the princess and comes to the peasant and asks, hey, what the hell is that? What's all the din? Now, of course, it's the musicians underneath the stage. But you know what the peasant tells him? Tell me. It's your wife looking for you. <laughs> that was a long joke, man. And the devil, you know, Belfagor decides, you know what, stuff it, I'm out of here. <laughs> and it just goes to show you the characteristics of the devil are what's preferred in the story. I mean, look at Ranjit Singh, basically, you know, he affects this air of being a debauched prince. You know, at the end of the day, he's living in luxury, but... When it really comes to the battlefield and political tactics, he's something else altogether. He looks like the devil, but he's actually the peasant. We also have to understand that his, let's say, the first three decades of his life, let's say up to the year 1810, were very different from the later decades, from 1810 to 1839. I believe his own father, Singh would have actually told him, Singh would have actually told him about how to, you know, you know, as sad as it is to say this, he would have told him how to basically crush the Sikhs because really people get the leaders they deserve. And if the Sikhs at that time really became so corrupt, so imbecilic that they wanted a monarchy, well, rather than anyone unfit tyrannizing them, why not have one of their own, like Ranjit Singh, at least guiding them somewhere, you know? Well, it's a whole different story that his descendants couldn't keep up the empire and uh, they, let's say, were not uh, hardcore enough, I would say, put in the simple words. But yeah, but he, he established something really solid. He established something solid and basically, getting back to Machiavelli, he wrote this book called Discourses on Levi or Levi, whichever, no, Levi, you know, yeah. Levi, whichever pronunciation you prefer. But fine, then I'll use Levi. And Levi was one of the foremost historians of Rome, and two things uh, stick out in that book. They catch your attention, and they should if you're a Sikh. The first is that, you know, Machiavelli reiterates his uh, argument in The Prince about two forms of cruelty. There is necessary cruelty, which is constructive cruelty. Now, that's the sort of cruelty which hardens people to life, which shows them the truth, and which improves them. Right? That's called necessary cruelty. We have mm -hmm. to be cruel to be good. Hmm. Interesting thought. Does disciplining your child count on this one? Who? Disciplining your child. Yeah, it would. I mean, I believe it would, but there's just one form of it. The yeah, simple example, yeah. Now, psychologically, if you accept all the cruelty in your life as necessary cruelty, I mean, look at the Khalsa and the forests before Ranjit Singh. Manu asi manu manu You know, Manu is the sickle weed of water. The more he cuts, the more he grows. Yep, don't survive. Yep, that cruelty is undeserved. But when they take it, when they perceive it, when they convince themselves that's necessary cruelty, it allows them to improve themselves to the point they finally finish off Manu, right? This in simplistic terms. Mm -hmm. 
Then comes destructive cruelty, which is basically cruelty without cause. It has no proverbial cause behind it. It has no excuse to justify it. This is the sort of cruelty which Guru Nanak talks about, you know, in Gurbani, in Asadivar, when he talks about, you know, how kings rip noses off and exploit peasants and all that. That cruelty always produces an inferno which basically destroys civilizations. It very well could, yep. Yep. Now, if you think about it, moving on, when you look at the story of Romulus and Remulus, the ones who founded Rome. Yep, yep. It's Romulus who got killed by Remulus, isn't it? Man, these two names are always confusing. Sorry, man, I can't help you out there. Okay, let me just check. I've got the book at hand. I mean, it's a solid book. And, oh, look, I just typed in Rome Founders and it comes in Blackberry Limited. Crap, I never knew that. Mm-hmm. Right, here it is. Uh, damn, uh, founding of Rome. Yeah, Romulus and Remus. I think that's how you say his name, Remus. Yeah, the ones who got suckled by the she-wolf. Yep, upon a hill in Rome. Upon a hill in Rome. Now, there are a lot of writers who actually use this myth. Seems it was very... Uh, very common it became very you know intertwined with the roman image of themselves i believe what happened was that remus ended up killing romulus hmm. no no romulus killed remus yep so basically what happens is romulus kills remus and they you know fire he finds the city of rome basically and he's very aggrieved about his brother now, Machiavelli says that, you know, look at what Romulus did. He founded Rome, right? He did. What came out of Rome? The Roman Empire, the Roman civilization, and the, the modern Western world in general, I would say. Yep, exactly. Now, that one act of cruelty which Romulus did, Romulus had a vision. He wanted Rome to go a certain way. His brother did not share that vision. Obviously, you can't judge them on the ethics of the time, but if you look at it today, this act of fratricide, what do you call it? Necessary cruelty or destructive cruelty? Mm. In the light of what happened centuries later, you could say it was necessary. It was necessary, right. With Ranjit Singh, obviously the empire failed. The empire fell. It was betrayed. The internal structure failed. But then, which internal structure has survived betrayal? Tell me that. Mm, nope, no, not a single example. Right. It is time there were many like Baba Dial Singh, Narankari, Akali Pula Singh, Baba Balak Singh, many who opposed Ranjit Singh's you know, innovations into Sikh practices. That is another matter altogether. However, if we were to say that Ranjit Singh, you know, lived a debauched life, he married so many women, he did this, he did that, or basically he exploited people, well, end of the day, which empire in its rise hasn't exploited people? Do you really think the 
descendants of the Mughals who we wiped out would call us saviors? <laughs> the curses every single day, five times a day. Five times a day. So think about it. His acts of necessary cruelty, even if they were against fellow Sikhs, were necessitated by the fact that those fellow Sikhs deserved it. Uh, yeah, you could say that. Yeah, true. Tell me, after Nawab Kapoor Singh and Jassa Singh Alwalia, which missile Sardar decided to fight for the Panth's interests? Which missile Sardar after them raised a finger for Panthic interests? Mm, nope, 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 not many. Right. Someone as old as Justice Singh Ramgarhia at the Sarbat Khalsa at Darbar Sahib and Shah Zaman invaded pretty much said, we'll let him pass through to Delhi. We don't have a you know, dog in this fight. Compare that with the old Sardars who basically savaged anyone who passed through the Punjab. Yep, this was, uh, let's say, a tactical decision. Well, strategic decision, not tactical. Right. Now, you can say they had many different reasons to, many various reasons to, but I don't believe they had any compelling reasons such as let's just be nice to the guy. Okay. Uh, let me ask you a very simple question. The question is simple, yep. but uh, the conversations are not. Okay. You're a businessman. Yep. You started your business. Now you are up, up on those Fortune 500 company, whatever that is. Thank you. You have, a drive who ha you have a driver who has been driving for you for the past 20 years, let's say. Yep. The driver's getting old. Yep. You know, he's no longer the best you can, you can hire or you can get. Hmm. So you, you decide to retire him and get a new driver who, let's say, knows the road better, was a better driver who understands the car better than him. Because you know, there's innovations coming every single day. Would that be cruelty? Necessary or unnecessary? Necessary. Well, but you, you just take the guy out of his job. I did. I sure did. But then something you need to look at, and we covered that in the last leadership episode, is how much are you willing to sacrifice for one guy? That's the exact thing. A very simple example to tell that some people just have to go. And, I mean, if you look at the missile sardars at the end of the day, well, then we can say Ranjit Singh should have instituted a separate system or a different system or a similar system. End of the day, all of them deserve to go. Yeah, because uh, they are holding back the progress of, let's say, our own people. They could do better, but they just don't have the ability. They should they do, do better. They ought to do better. They just don't have the, they have the ability. They have to step aside. They don't have the vision. And here's another point which Machiavelli makes in discourses on Le uh, Levi. If you look at Baba Banda Bahadur, one man rule. Mm-hmm. If you look at the modern prime ministerial and presidential system, the decision comes down to one person at the end of the day. One man rule. What do you agree? Yeah, of course. One man rule, yeah. Yeah, one man rule. So end of the day, Nwab Kapoor Singh, 
ten jatedars report to him. One man rule. Uh, yeah. All over the place, we have one man rule, even in democracies and courts, whatever, even in republics. And that's what Machiavelli identified at the end of the day. A republic still has that autocratic dimension because, you know, there is a one man rule. So the fate of republics and empires is decided by one common factor, which is what? The one man. Would you say it's not more about being centralized power? It's being, okay. The final responsibility rests on the shoulder of a single person. Yes. It's, it's more about responsibility than power. Yep. The responsibility to execute power. Yeah, of course. And uh, let me give you another example, because my examples are really simple from my everyday life, yeah? I agree. Have, have you ever uh, seen or taken part in a funeral procession in, in India? Oh, uh, no, I haven't. Four people can carry their body on the shoulders, yeah? Yep. But the final responsibility to let the pyre on fire is on one person. Brother, that is so deep, you have started me thinking about philosophical haikus from Japan. Well, man, you just got to observe the world around you. The lessons are all there. And that's what Machiavelli actually argues. That's what even Musashi argues. That's what all the, you know, famous fighters, warriors, political strategists argue that these are lessons from the world. You can't change reality. You have to go with reality as it is. You have to go with the flow. And what if I sign a petition? Can I change reality by that? You can't. Ch- oh, okay, look, Roe versus Wade, right? Abortion was the last <laughs> line. No, no, look, here's. Here's my perspective. I know I'm going to be savaged for this, but abortion was allowed as the last line of defense, right? Mm. Yeah, it was, it's very controversial, so it would probably take 10 hours for us to you know, even talk about what happened back in those days. Just imagine from a Sikh state's perspective, would we allow abortion as the last line of defense in the most extreme of cases? Oh, yeah, of course. Right. What happens when that prerogative becomes the first line of defense? Ooh, then nobody can save you from internal collapse. And it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's a consequence. It's, it's, a, it's a symptom of internal decay, I would say. And that's exactly what I believe happened in the States, that it became the first line of defense. Basically, the... You know, liberals cried wolf at every dog until the sheep rebelled. That's how I see it. If you check the news today, they are uh, talking about. Uh, sorry, in the name of the justice, Clarence Thomas. Yes, they want they want him gone. Well, the thing is that, you know, when they made abortion so commonplace as the first line of defense that, hey, get banged up and go and kill the kid, get banged up, go and kill the kid, this backlash finally amenited, it originated, and now suddenly the people who actually require abortion, who actually have valid reasons for abortion, are the ones who are going to suffer. Hmm, you are correct here. There's lifestyle choices, yeah, and then there is 
some legitimate reason, maybe medical reason, maybe a social reason. And then there's just like, I don't care. I'm a free soul. So it's available. I'll do it. And there you go. Dead consequences comes back. And it takes one man. So that's what Machiavelli is arguing. In an age of degeneracy, in an age of rapid regression, where things are de-escalating, de-evolving, it takes one man to either set things right or either to destroy them. History judges that man, but that man himself needs to be necessarily cruel. And that's what Maharaja Ranjit Singh was. He gave you three chances. If you stuffed up the third chance, fourth time, you had a sword in your gut. No questions asked. No questions asked. Yeah, this, this is this is the reality of st uh, statecraft and politics, right? Banda Singh Bhadar had rapists, uh, female infant killers, and pedophiles tied to cannons and blowing to bits right in front of the masses just to teach people a lesson. See, never get involved as rulers in the sentiments of the masses. Never cater to the sentiments. You are there to rule over the masses and give them guidance because you've proved yourself worthy enough to do it no matter how you did it, but you're not there to appease the masses. No, no of course not. Of course not. I don't need validation from them. If you look at all those old warriors, you know, all those old Khalsa warriors, everyone were, every one of them, I believe, was Machiavellian, but, you know, Ranjit Singh was more so because, you know, Ranjit Singh knew how to run an empire. He probably had the biggest Khalsa state, more bigger than his predecessors, right? Yep, it is. And uh, let's say that even if he had stayed alive for 10 more years, the world map would look a lot different today. Yep, he had more complexity, more sophistication to deal with, more issues to deal with. Anyhow, even if you look at his predecessors, many Sikhs at the time would have had problems. I mean, the Khatris and the Sikhs of the cities always had problems with Baba Banda Singh, right? Banda Singh did not let them hold him back. He wasn't there to appease their, senti uh, to appease their sentiments. Similarly mm -hmm. with Nawab Kapoor Singh, you know, you had a similar case with Ranjit Singh as well. I mean, he never sought out to appease Akali Kula Singh just to silence him temporarily. He used Akali Kula Singh. That's one part of the relationship. On the other hand, today, the leadership we have is trying to appease the masses. That's not going to work out. More than 10 years ago, I've yep. seen uh, uh, a video. Uh, it was just a, a picture of a little girl maybe two years old, just playing in her parents' garden. Yep. So the camera zooms out to the village they're living in. Yeah. Yep. Then the camera zooms out to the forest that surrounds the village. Yep. Then, then it zooms out to, let's say, a large geographical part of the country. It's like a, a, a little rolling mountain range, yeah? Yep. And beyond those mountains, there's a war going on. Yep. So the men fighting, there's cannon fire, there's gunshots, there are horses, dead bodies, medics, and everything. The works pretty much. Yeah. So so you have smoke, dead bodies, war, cruelty, blood everywhere. And then the camera yep. zooms in real fast, right to the face of that little child, just playing in the garden, yep. just chasing butter butterflies. Yep. That's exactly the reality. 
there is the reality basically at the end of the day. It's always going to be the reality. There's going to be grimness and beauty. They go side by side. Yeah. So if you are running a state, your brain is constantly in, in, a, in a matter of war or conflict. What to do next? What to do next? How to do it? Who's the best person to do it? In what capacity should they do it? Yeah. Um, but a, 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 a normal yeah. civilian is just, just living his life, just going by his work or whatever they're doing. And thinking, yeah, looks good. But that, in, that luxury of ignorance is provided by somebody who can be real cruel. That's the essence of being Machiavellian. That's the essence. And that's what our people have forgotten ultimately. They just can't do it. I mean, one of these liberal kids from the States, you know what he told me on this uh, platform called Discord? You tell me. I would be very disappointed if Banda Singh Badr and his warriors ended up killing innocent people via collateral damage or anyone who did not deserve to die. I mean, okay, kid, what do you expect? Banda Singh Badr to knock your door off your flowers and say, oh, sorry, you little git. I uh, did actually end up doing some of that stuff. Just ignorance, man. Just ignorance. Collateral is a word that can be used in modern context. Yeah? Yep. But but nobody's walking around with a halo on the head or something stamped on, on the forehead telling them what, what exactly the person that is. War is hell. War is hell at worse, the end of the day. Worse than that, mate. And, I mean... If you want to carve something out for your people, if you want your people to live in security, you've got to be ready to fight for it. Just, just see, uh, okay, see this by this very recent example. The people in Afghanistan welcomed Taliban's stability over the democratic war. Yep. And that's the general telling us that. You, see, you can just just, just yeah. go on YouTube today and see videos from the Ukrainian-Russian war. The people who have got nothing to do with it, who's sitting ten thousand miles away comfortably in their in their homes, they're just typing Russian bad, Ukrainian bad, do this, do that. More supplies coming in. Yeah, fight, fight, fight. So well, it doesn't affect you. So it's easy for you to say that. And see, the ability to cut out that clutter is also Machiavellian, and that's what Ranjit Singh did. He cut out the clutter, he cut out the criticism, he decided, you know what? Middle finger salute to all this rubbish, I'm going to do what I have to do. Right? One singular mm -hmm. man decides the fate of the Sikhs. That's another thing altogether that maybe at the time the Sikhs deserved what happened to them, you know? They got betrayed. Why did they, you know, emptily... Okay, look, Ranjit Singh was a product of the Sikh society at that time. Don't you think that Sikh society had become so liberal, so degenerate, it was beginning to trust non-Sikhs in the matters of ultimate power? There was no healthy caution around what they were doing. They never knew what they were actually up to. They never knew what the others, the aliens, the outsiders were up to. To the degree they actually let them change their fate, their beliefs and everything, and we're still struggling to sort the mess out even today. Another topic for our podcast. Right. And on the other hand, if you say that Ranjit Singh did not trust the Sikhs enough, fine. Why didn't he trust the Sikhs enough? He saw them betray Banda. He saw them betray Nawab Kapoor Singh's legacy. He saw them betray Sikhi itself. There was you a lot know? of infighting. There was a lot of infighting. I mean, he grew up in a generation when he saw Missile Sardar kill Missile Sardar. And mind you, these were Missile Sardars who had fought shoulder to shoulder in the Vada Kalukara. And now they were at each other's throats. 
And what did he do? He decided, you know what, I'm going to get rid of the system altogether. I have a vision. I believe I have the strength. I have the confidence. I'll fight to restore some semblance of order to my people. Mm -hmm. And that's what he ultimately ended up doing. Now, what the fruits are, I don't know. But if the Sikhs maybe do not rise politically in the future, we can criticize Ranjit Singh that that one man's decision doomed us. If they do, however, that exonerates him straight away, that at least he relit the empire building passion in us, the spirit in us. He gave us that empire building edge again. Would you say that empires are built by lions but run by hyenas or jackals? Yeah, I actually agree with it. Quite a picturesque image, but yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> Simple thought, yeah. National Geographic. <laughs> End of the day, the whole point of this episode, this filler episode is, look, let's put it simply, don't be dumb. Exercise some, you know, cunning in life. Uh, constructive cunning. You don't subvert your own people. If you want to get your people to somewhere... This is something I've actually concluded after a study of history. The greatest men, the greatest warriors who have given us something in this world, they have led their people through the torturous hells, which we cannot even comprehend today. <clears throat> yep, true. Now, can we blame them sitting in the comfort of your homes? We can easily say, no, Kapoor Singh led the Sikhs in a wrong way through the Chota Kalukara. Like, I mean, that's what the upgrades are probably saying now at the moment. On the other hand, the Chota Kalukara also gave us something. You know, we became sovereign. We became empire builders. We had that reignition of the passion, the flame Guru Nanak, Guru Gobind Singh gave to us to make us empire builders at the end of the day. But unfortunately, we have lost that. Because the leaders we look at today seem to be relying too much on God and saying that the leaders in the past relied on God, so there's nothing wrong with it. But in reality, the leaders in the past did not rely on God. They relied on themselves. If you rely on some, some other powers, are you truly a leader? Well, there you go. See, Ranjit Singh took the responsibility and he showed God what he could do, right? Yeah. Cut to today, what are we seeing? They're just showing God how big of a clown they can be. Man, I've got a really good joke here, but I'm going to tell you in private after this podcast. See, if you look at the Punjabi Subhada Santa Fateh Singh, Santa Chandran Singh debacle, you remember reading about that? Yeah, I do, I do, yeah. Right. They asked Fateh Singh at the final cusp, in front of the media, what do you want? A Sikh majority state or a Punjab with equal territorial resources as the other states? And guess what he says? Sikh majority state. And look where that got us. And uh, one of the Bajurgs, one of the elders who actually witnessed this happen in real life, do you know what he told me later? You know how they justified, how Fateh Singh's uh, disciples justified his stupidity? Tell me. 
Oh, Santaji had a big heart. He didn't want others being deprived of much needed resources. And when that same argument is made by those other states against our waters, we are crying fell. And the biggest hypocrisy here is we call Fateh Singh a hero. Well, sooner or later, the winds of time will blow up your cover, Matt. Yep, right. Now, imagine if Ranjit Singh had been there instead of Fateh Singh. What do you think he would have said? He would have, man, he would have probably converted them. Right. He would have said we want equal territorial resources, even though he would have received flake seed. It's, it's amazing, though, because at that time, many people were arguing that Fateh Singh actually made the right choice by saying Sikh state. It's only later they realized after a decade how badly they had been savaged. Well, if you're good at delivering speeches, you are not, not necessarily good at doing your job. See, end of the day, our leaders in the past, I mean, once again, we come to this word Machiavellian. They knew what the necessity of being cruel could get them. Where they had to be cruel, they were cruel. Where they were, you know, pacifists, they were pacifists. Ultimately, that's what we lack today. And we lack it in our personal lives as well. I mean, look at our kids in the West. What the hell are they doing? We can have, uh, you know, discussions on Black Lives Matter in U.S. Gurdwaras. We can have discussions on giving Pants hard-earned money to other communities, which, you know, do not even need it. We can have these discussions on how to do the best virtue signaling. But if you have a discussion on Akali Pula saying that suddenly becomes Islamophobic, that's what I learned today. Have you heard the, uh, them using the word allies? Not that I can remember. They see BLM and all, the, all that stuff as allies. And I cautioned them against what? White supremacy. Well, you chose to move to a white country then. You're not in Nigeria. See, the lessons we should be taking from our past, we have forgotten how to take those lessons. We don't take those lessons anymore. I mean, end of the day, if you read about Ranjit Singh, you get this impression straight. First time I read about him was in a Gurdwara library. I was pretty young. That's when I first found out who Maharaja Ranjit Singh was. Instantly, my brain clicked and said, this man was pretty fast. Teja. Ebanda bot teja. You know how we say it in common in our Punjabi households? That guy's pretty fast. Mm-hmm. That's what it said. E bot teja bandazi. True. Right? Cunning, decisive. He could have, if Ranjit Singh ever wrote a book on power, I'm sure it would be a bestseller even today. It would sell millions worldwide. But there would be no Sikhs buying or reading it. Nay, gee, we are very good. We are good people. We don't need politics. That's not Taram. And uh, do you know that in or in Sam's empire, there's not even a single death penalty? But then it goes to show you that he knew how to avoid giving the death penalty. He had other means of destroying people. I mean, one of his favorite tactics, and this was a psychological one, was that you would be mutilated straight away for a crime. Now, I meant to tell you that this is how they think that his empires look just rainbows and sunshine and rabbit and green grass. See, this is how it, misinformed people are with the, uh, with the reality of that time. Basically, and if you look behind it, if you look behind all of it, I mean, who replaced the Afghani dynasty? Who kicked out Abdali's descendants by, you know, subterfuge? Ranjit Singh. Yep, and uh, he did that with what? 
nothing but his brains and a Machiavellian mindset. Brains and bronze. There was also another thing which the British, uh, they actually managed to apprehend a document what, what Ranjit Singh was planning, but they never actually uh, confronted him formally on this, was a massive uprising of, you know, princes and kings in northern India to sort of uh, lay siege to them and just finish them off and then await what they would do next. Killing the British in this way would have, you know, allowed him to create a pan-subcontinental subcontinental confederacy to uh, kick them out of the subcontinent. And uh, to, to to this day, I personally believe that reducing didn't die a natural death. I believe a man so swift-minded, so decisive, there would have been many enemies, but he very nearly had the British destroyed. Very nearly, that's how quick-minded he was. I mean, look at it this way. If you compare him with, say, the Akali Nihangs at the time, they were arguing we can't take British tactics. If Ranjit Singh had listened to them and the British had decided to march into Punjab, we would have been destroyed in less than three months. True. The reason we gave them two Anglo-Sikh wars and made them cry back in their United Kingdom was because Ranjit Singh modernized the Khalsa fort. Yeah, some uh, regiments were actually given commands in French. Copying the enemy's tactics to stall the enemy. I think we, we discussed it. Uh, it was uh, Babur who brought uh, gunpowder to India, and everybody adopted it. Pretty they much. Didn't say, yep. they, they didn't say it's it's a, a foreign technology or enemy's technology. We shouldn't do that. No, everybody did. But, you know, there has to be some spirit behind this as well. Ranjit Singh actually realized that it wasn't the gunpowder, it was the white men wielding the gunpowdered guns who were actually the power behind the gun. He got them to teach their tactics to the Sikhs. Otherwise, if you want to compare, look at the Maryland Wars. The Mary had muskets as well, but they never had a white man instructing them, and they got wiped out, even though they had the enemy's own weapon turned against the enemy. Yep, they would shoot the Maoris, and even though Maoris are not quite big and strong, they would still charge them and club them to death. They were so, so strong. Pretty much their own head turned against them. Uh, yeah, that's true, yeah. Right, and that's what you need to realize down here in the arts of statecraft and military. You really need to be very quick-minded, very dirty-minded to do what you need to do. Where does, where does this assumption come from? That if you are in power, you need to be good. You need to have a clean heart. You need to have folded hands and everything. I have no idea. For the life of me, I can't figure out why this affliction is among Sikhs. Hmm. Well... It currently exists. That's all I know. It has to be weeded out if you want to get somewhere as a community in the future. That's, you know, ultimately what I would like to say down here. If you want to progress as a community, we've got to be ready to do the dirty stuff. And politics is dirty. Trust is even dirtier. Well, let the boomers go boom and then we'll have something. Let <laughs> the boomers go boom and we will have something. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that sentiment 101%.
I actually do agree with it. But that Banda Singh brother comment was shocking. I'd be very disappointed if Banda Singh did this. And I mean, I was thinking that if they were alive at that time, if that kid was alive at that time, Banda Singh would just whip the crap out of him. He definitely would. And we have touched upon this before. There was a village of Rangars near Anandpur Sahib. They used to spy on the Sikhs and harass their women. Guru Gobind Singh Ji had the entire village destroyed and the inhabitants chased out. Mm, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the village. Uh, I've read about it, but I can't remember at this moment. Right. Yeah, These uh, things uh, happened. Arangar means uh, Muslim Rajput, yeah? Yep. These okay. things have happened. These things have happened and they will happen. Well, of course they will. Uh, okay. Uh, do you know... Uh, okay, have you seen the movie 300? Yes. So it's based on the first Persian invasion or the second Persian invasion of Greece? Mm, I think it might be the first or the second, can't remember. But no, let's go. Okay. Okay. So nearly 150 years later, Alexander invaded Greece? Yes. Sorry. Invaded Greece, no Persian Empire. Sorry, yeah, after Greece, <laughs> yeah, Macedonia, Greece, yeah, all, all things. Yeah, he destroyed the Persian Empire. Yeah, yep. But when he reached the eastern end of the Persian Empire, he actually found a Greek-speaking community there. Yep, they were all Greek, but during that in invasion, uh, Xerxes was the emperor. Yeah? Yes. They surrendered to him and they were relocated to the eastern part of the empire from the part of the empire that's in modern-day Turkey. Yep. And I think that that was where the Apollo temple was destroyed, I think. Yep. 150 years later, Alexander discovered him because he, was, he didn't knew that they even existed. And suddenly, right in front of him, there was a Greek city, people speaking Greek, Greek architecture, Greek clothes, Greek culture, even grapevines and everything. The soldiers yep. felt at home, yeah? Olives and cheese. Yeah, yeah. But when he when he actually discovered that how exactly they arrived here, he had every single one of them killed. Their grapevines uprooted, every single thing burned down, the, the city demolished. They were convicted of high treason and executed. The fact that Ranjit Singh tried dismantling the Pulkias, it has a similar vibe to it, doesn't it? Because he knew they would assist the British against him, and if he had managed to get them out of the way earlier, we wouldn't have had to face what we did. Man, man. Yeah, 100% true, and they sought uh, British patronage, and that's how this arrived. And I suppose Orville's comment that when good people sleep at night, dirty men walk the streets defending them against evil really counts here, doesn't it? Uh, okay. Uh, play a game called Daisy. Have you heard of it? Which one? Uh, D-A-Y-Z. Some call it Day, some call it Daisy. And what is it? It's a survival game. It's a it's a an open platform. We got two maps. They're huge maps, and you have to survive. It includes eating, 
eating food, includes farming, includes guns, includes looting, and includes building bases and raiding other bases, yeah? So I was just watching a video. I wanted to just learn something to do some particular thing. And underneath there was a comment. And somebody said that Daisy is what the world would look like if there was no state. Makes sense. Makes sense. The comment really makes you think, okay, if there is no, let's say, powerful person in power, who will stop the bad guys? Do you think bad guys don't exist? Uh, there's a, a little movie uh, you can find on YouTube. Uh, there's like a power outage in America. People turn savage in two days. Basically, but the guy in peril also needs to be a guy who's actually, you know, I suppose emboldened enough to confront evil with what people call necessary evil. Destructive evil has to be confronted with necessary evil. Destructive cruelty has to be confronted with necessary cruelty. If the survival of your people, your bunth necessitates destroying a village and chasing the people out, you do it. You have to. If it necessitates killing the guy in front of you, you have to do it. And that's what Musashi argues in the Book of Five Rings. That's the way. The way can only be gauged when you learn about life and death and about the fact that you have to kill the guy in front of you and that guy has to kill you. Uh, do you remember, have you seen the movie, uh, it's not the movie, Navy SEAL Marcus Luttrell, who was actually uh, given shelter in Afghanistan by our village, that his entire SEAL team was killed? Uh, Operation Red Wing, wasn't it? That was the opening of the operation, but what was the name of the movie? It's uh, Mark Wahlberg in there. Uh, Lone Survivor, I think. Yes, yeah, you're correct, okay. They couldn't kill a shepherd boy. Who had discovered them? The shepherd straight away, straight away ran to the Taliban. They chased him down and they killed the entire team except one person. And he left to fight another day, basically, you're saying? No, he survived only because of the Pashtun code of honor, Pashtun Valley. They gave refuge to him. And they were willing to fight to death to protect him. Oh, haven't you heard we had Pike and you also helping his enemies? Yeah, yeah, of course. He, he was just you now patching people up and say, you haven't killed enough of my Sikh brothers. Get up and kill some more. <laughs> I was being sarcastic. <laughs> well, you know, my sarcasm is much stronger than yours, right? <laughs> the end of the thing to wrap it up. In life, no one cares about your sentiments. No one cares about your term. You have to do what's the best for you and your people. And, there, and if that entails being necessarily cruel, being Machiavellian, go for it. Ranjit Singh did. It worked out for him. All our past leaders did. It worked out for them. Today, we got the affliction of trying to please everyone. If you try doing that, you're not going to get anywhere. Hmm. That's, the, that's the lesson here, yeah. A leader has a different path. A warrior has a different path. A saint would probably have a different path. But this is the way of the soldier saint. This is the Khalsa. Then this is the Khalsa. Right. That's all for today. Thank you very much for listening to us. Guruji ka Khalsa. Guruji ka Khalsa. Guruji ka Khalsa.